University of California, Irvine, this is the UCI Podcast. I'm Brian Bell. Robots are everywhere in this world. They're used to bring speed and precision to manufacturing. They roam around our homes vacuuming our floors. And there's even some that navigate the UCI campus delivering food to hungry students. Thank you. I hope you enjoy your delivery. Zot, zot, zot. Magnus Eggerstedt began his new role as the Stacy Nicholas Dean of the Henry Samueli School of Engineering in the summer of 2021. Upon his arrival, UCI gained not only a new leader on its campus, but also a renowned expert in robot science and engineering. During his time at the Georgia Institute of Technology, Professor Eggerstedt began looking into a less examined corner of the field, that of very slow-moving robots. Placed in remote locations to perform tasks related to agriculture, environmental monitoring, or biodiversity protection, these robots are designed for long deployments and, for the purposes of self-preservation and energy efficiency, they're deliberately unhurried while doing their work. Dean Eggerstedt has written a book about his experiences with these slow bots. Recently published by Princeton University Press, it's called Robot Ecology, Constraint-Based Design for Long-Duration Autonomy. The Dean joined the UCI podcast to talk about his new book. That discussion is up next. Dean Eggerstedt, welcome to the UCI Podcast. Hello, thanks for having me. So we're here today mainly to talk about your new book, which is out. Uh, It's been published by Princeton University Press. It's called Robot Ecology, Constraint-Based Design for Long-Duration Autonomy. This is about robots that are out in the field doing work for us. And you're talking about developing robot systems that have the ability to stay out in the world for a long time without any human intervention. Tell us a little bit about the history of your work in this field and and how you came to write this book. So the the start of this entire journey actually was Costa Rica. I uh, was there maybe five, six years ago with my family and I got mildly obsessed with sloths, right? I, uh, I couldn't understand how these uh, potentially quite tasty animals could, could just exist. They're just sitting there, not doing anything, waiting for jaguars or eagles to swoop down and, and eat them. And I, I just didn't understand how nature could support that kind of lifestyle. So I, uh, you know, I started reading up about <laughs> sloths and other slow animals. And uh, it turns out that there are strategic advantages to being slow. Birds of prey, for instance, they have something called optical flow sensors. Uh, basically, what that means is that they detect motion. So if you're slow enough, you become almost invisible to uh, to predator birds. Uh, and there are all sorts of other reasons why slow is good. Uh, energy efficiency being the, the primary one. And uh, I've spent 20 years building robots, and I tried to build faster and more aggressive and agile robots. And I... Uh, I got a little intrigued by this idea of what if I take a step back and build really slow, hyper-energy-efficient robots? That would kind of change the 
the way we think about the design and the way we think about what the robots should be doing. So that's kind of how it started. I just got fascinated by, by slowness as a design paradigm. So it's very different from these robots that are doing parkour and uh, uh, obstacle courses. Yeah, this is <laughs> exactly this is as far from a backflipping robot that you could possibly get. Uh, but once you've decided that you're going to build slow robots, the next question is why? <laughs> Beyond the fact that slow is kind of interesting, what's the point? And uh, I had been working on precision agriculture for a while, where I uh, deployed robots out on the farm fields of Illinois. I had uh, autonomous tractors dealing with, with corn, for instance. And uh, I started thinking about what if you have robots almost living out on the farm fields for an entire growing cycle? I mean, basically, they have to move very slowly, <laughs> almost at the speed of a plant, if you will. Uh, there, you know, being slow is actually kind of, it makes sense. And in a lot of different environmental monitoring applications, you know, you should just be present in the environment for, for a long time. So this is kind of where it started. I, I knew that I was excited about slowness and I liked this idea of robots being out in a natural world for a really, really long period of time for the purpose of kind of environmental monitoring and checking what's going on out there. So those were the kind of two pieces. Uh, and I started talking about this project and I used a lot of terms like robots living in the environment or robots surviving for long periods of time. And I realized that I was using words that smelled more like ecology than, than robotics. So that was kind of the, the genesis of the idea of robot ecology with this idea of, of an organism in its habitat. So a robot, it's in, in its environment. And the way we do robotics normally, and uh, Boston Dynamics backflipping back robot is a beautiful example of this, is we go to a lab, we build a robot, we have it work in the lab, and then we take it out and hope that it's going to work wherever we deploy it. But what if we actually thought of the design of the robot as being intimately linked to the environment in which it's living? Then all of a sudden you think of a system, an ecosystem, where the robot is just yet another... Uh, participant in that ecosystem. Do you want this thing to blend in and be kind of camouflaged in this ecosystem or, or, or is that impossible to do? What I don't want is for uh, the robot to become an invasive species. I don't want it to be harmful to the, the environment. Uh, camouflage isn't that big of a deal, uh, but uh, one thing that we did is we built a version of, of, of a slow robot that we call the Slothbot. Uh, so this is a super slow uh, cable-driven robot that's hanging up under the, the tree canopies. And every now and then it goes out and sunbathes and recharges the batteries. And then it goes back in under the treetops. Uh, and we deployed this robot um, up in, uh, in a botanical garden on the East Coast, which is where I, I spent the previous part of my career. And uh, it was really cool to see squirrels actually sitting on top of the robot. Uh, in the beginning, there was a hawk that was nesting nearby that kept checking out the robot to make sure that all was good. And after a while, the hawk didn't seem to care anymore. And the squirrels kept using the robot as a, as a place to just hang out. And uh, to me, that was success, that it was accepted as a, a member of that particular local ecosystem. And what are these robots out there monitoring? You, uh, I, I read in the book uh, a certain climate, biodiversity. Uh, what are some of the other things that these robots are keeping track of out there? 
So ultimately, I am a tool maker. So I, I make hammers, and then uh, I give my hammers to uh, people that know how to build things. Uh, so in this case, people that are studying uh, conservation biology or field ecologists. And I tend to think of what we do as providing a, a mobile platform that you can use to monitoring monitor a lot of different things. Uh, what we have focused on are things that are called microclimate data, which is fancy speak for things like pressure, humidity, illumination, carbon dioxide levels. So things that we can measure that have to do with the, with the local climate. And then we have cameras. So we're uh, interested in, in tracking certain species. Uh, we, uh, by teaming with a, a group of uh, biologists, we, we started looking for particular orchids, for instance, that... Uh, we were gearing up to send the robot down to Ecuador to actually figure out who is pollinating a particular orchid that we don't know who is pollinating it. Uh, and then, then COVID happens. Is that through photography or, or, or how does it So it's cameras. That? Yeah, cameras so it's, uh, it's uh, video. What are the th- considerations? I, th- I think one of the things you go through in the book is the, this sort of uh, pairing of both energy conservation and they have to go to a certain place to get energy from the sun yeah. and that might impact their mission. Um, so how do, you, how do you square that? Once you have embraced this idea that the robots should survive and live for long periods of time outside, uh, then uh, that changes the design. And the book is really about how how does that change in perspective influence how we think about robotics. Um, so the normal way we do robotics is we have a task, we encode that task through a cost, and then we minimize the cost so we're acting optimally. Let's say you're a self-driving car and you want to get from, you want to as quickly as possible stop at a stop sign. So the, the way to do that if you're minimizing time is you slam the gas pedal, pedal to the metal, and then at the last second you slam the brakes, right? Uh, so that's, you're minimizing time. Now, if you get something wrong, then you come to a complete stop in the middle of an intersection, and that's potentially catastrophic, right? And if you are a robot out somewhere, again, for long periods of time, or, or you're a robot on Mars, right? uh, avoiding catastrophic events is much more important than being optimal. So acting optimal is, is com- almost completely irrelevant to this idea of surviving. And a big part of surviving is... You can't get stranded somewhere with completely depleted batteries with no ability to recharge. Let's say you're a solar-powered robot and you're in a shaded part of the world. If you're, let's say, under a tree canopy, and if you're out of battery under this tree canopy, then it's game over. So you always have to take energy management into account, and that's almost the first order of business. So rather than making sure that you get to always get to the right spot for the purpose of detecting orchids, say, rather than that, you have to always ask, do you have enough energy to keep going? Because if you don't, then that's the end of the mission. So it really changes this idea of, of what is important. And again, borrowing from ecology, this idea that survival, that's, that's what it's ultimately about, rather than some kind of optimality notions. In part three of the book, you talk about the difference between survival and survivability, these two concepts. Can you explain that, that difference? Well, I mean, it's partially it's, uh, you know, I'm a scientist, so I need to have a, a fancy term for something. But, but survivability is really the ability to, to survive. So always 
act in such a way that you never end up in a situation where you have no chance of actually surviving. So uh, let's say again, a car example, right? So you may not have crashed, but you may reach a point from which it is impossible to avoid a crash. Right? So it's not a matter of, of not crashing. It's a matter of always staying away from areas where there is no guaranteed recovery. So that's the idea of survivability, that you never end up in a situation from which there is no path forward to avoid a mission-ending uh, catastrophe. This book covers a lot of the work that you did while at Georgia Tech. Um, do, do you intend to do some work going forward now that you're here at UCI in this area? Absolutely. Uh, one of the things that I'm really excited about UCI is, is really that climate research, environmental research is, is front and center, and we're really world leaders in, in a lot of these areas. So I am very excited about this idea of having the Slothbot migrate to the West Coast. And in fact, uh, I have uh, negotiated with the Crystal Cove uh, Conservancy that we're going to put the Slothbot down on the beach. So it's going to be a beach-dwelling sloth robot. Uh, and it's going to be measuring things like the beach dynamics and see what's happening to our local beach ecosystems, because those are strong indicators of things happening with the climate. Should blend right in. There's a lot of slow-moving organisms on the beach here in Orange County. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, this book, who is, the, who is the audience for this book? Who do you intend to uh, be interested in reading this book? So I, I, I actually wrote the book almost like two books. So you can read the first part of it without knowing a lot of, of robotics. And uh, I kind of think of the first part of the book as, as an introduction to this general idea of, of robots being part of natural ecosystems and how do you think about organisms uh, in this particular way. So I wrote it as a almost like a popular science book. So I'm hoping that this is for you know, high school students, uh, you know, college students, people that are interested in what's the state of the art in robotics and how does it connect to, to ecology. And then the second half of the book is, is more technical. And there you probably need to be a, a graduate student in, you know, robotics or an adjacent field to, uh, to appreciate what's, what's going on. But I did it on purpose so that you could read the first half and get something out of it. And if you want to keep going, you could, but you don't have to. So you came to UCI in the summer of 2021. And uh, tell us a little bit about your experience of uh, coming on board here. How, how do you like it here in Irvine? So I'm really digging it. It's been, it's been almost nothing but positive. Um, let, me, let me tell you, first of all, why I was excited about UCI in, in the first place. I had reached a, a point in my career where I felt strongly that engineering was such a big part of all the defining questions of our time. You know, how do we feed the growing planet? How do we make sure we leave a, an environment for our kids that's not burned to the ground? How do, we, how do we structure our future societies with AI and robotics so that we, we don't become batteries in the matrix? Right? So these, these big mega questions. Engineering is such a big part of it, but engineering can't do it alone got to connect with other disciplines. So I was looking for a place that was truly multidisciplinary and where, where there just seemed to be a collaborative vibe built into 
the, the campus fabric. And I was really impressed with UCI and what I'd heard about it and my conversations before I accepted the position with, with other deans and, and people just seeming to genuinely like working together and also a, uh, a hunger on campus to really be part of making this planet better for everyone. So I came in with, uh, with that kind of expectation that this was a place where one could do big things in a collaborative way. And even though I've only been here since, since July, I don't think I was wrong in my uh, early assessment. This is a place where genuinely people like each other and where there is a kind of scrappy swagger in terms of just going after projects and problems that matter. And we're not done when we've written the paper and eight of our friends read the paper. No, that's not it. We also want to see our intellectual products make it into the communities around us. And that's fun. Well, Dean Eggerstead, I really want to thank you for joining us on the UCI podcast today. And uh, congratulations on the book. And I hope it uh, becomes a, a New York Times bestseller. I hope so, too. And thanks for having me. Robot Ecology, constraint-based design for long-duration autonomy, is available for purchase now. Who knows, it may even be pulled off a warehouse shelf and shipped to you by a robot. You can learn more about Dean Eggerstedt's work and other robotics research at UCI by visiting engineering.uci.edu. The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. I'm Brian Bell. Thank you for listening.